Greetings, everyone. A rainy day for a change, and we have been needing it. I was very glad to see the rain come along. We have a few people that are absent today, partially because probably of the weather and a little bit of summer flu that's been going around. But we still have a very large audience of people out there along the tape program and those who will be hearing this sermon one week from today. So in spite of the fact we're, what, about 40, 45 people here today, there will probably be two or 3,000 who will be hearing this message before it's all over. I think I'll comment briefly on what Jack Mitchell said. I want to explain just one thing, that I would concur with his basic conclusion with certain parameters and certain accepted criteria which would have to obtain. But to put it all in focus, let's put it this way. I agree with some of those in the Worldwide Church of God that the only way there could be a reconciliation would be through a divine miracle from God. Now, if it is a miracle from God, then I really don't have any say-so, do I? It's not an arbitrary decision on my part at all, nor really is it an arbitrary decision on anyone else's part. Today, in the Worldwide Church of God, the biggest proponent of the rumor, quote, Ted is soon going to be coming back, end quote, is my father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. He starts that rumor about once a week, and it goes out to Australia, it comes back from churches all over the world and around the country. In my own opinion, they have been using that in a way as a kind of an unsettling influence to keep their own members off balance because there are literally hundreds and hundreds of them, maybe even a few thousand, who probably would be with the Church of God International and who would have long since made up their mind to go where they know there is a viable work being done and to escape some of the Hitlerian police state tactics of their own local pastors if they did not feel there was some remote chance eventually of reconciliation. Now, when Mr. Mitchell talks about the brethren and the love that we have for them and the idea of mutual fellowship and tears of joy for people to reunite, you bet, 100%, I'm in agreement. That would happen, I'm sure. And so far as the average person in the church is concerned, there are exceptions, and I've heard from some of them. There are letters I tear up and throw away because they smoke when they come, and some of the words are not too clean or pretty. Uh, they call me various names and uh, have sundry descriptions relating to my ancestry. Well, not that, because they know my dad is my dad. But uh, there are people inside the Worldwide Church who would probably say, if they heard, you know, the news, Garner Ted Armstrong was killed in an automobile wreck or a plane crash, oh, is that right? Well, it's about time. Uh, not many of them, not more than a few thousand, but some of them have been trained rather well to hate, and they hate with alacrity. They really know how to hate. But a lot of them do not have that hatred, and they probably would like to see a reconciliation. So would I, but only under God's terms, and that would mean I would have to have the kind of authority and the kind of power in that organization to do what Mr. Mitchell said, which is to have the power over the ministry to do away with the police state tactics that are now in place, and a lot of other changes would have to come along. They'd have to grow in some doctrinal understanding. They'd have to come to understand the real truth about the missing 24-hour period in the Passover. They'd have to understand a lot of other very important things that God has caused us to grow into and to come to understand that their organization is not understood. And as I said in my letter back in November, it's almost as if we are on a foundational rock and we're watching the parent organization drifting farther and farther out to sea in great departures of actual major understandings of the Bible and in doctrine. 
I had a great big thick envelope about oh, a half inch thick or so come to me from Tucson the other day, and there have been newspaper articles, some of them just abominable. I think there was a very bad article in the Tyler newspaper just this last week. Uh, there was an article in Shreveport, one in Dallas. I've been sent clippings of that one, one in Longview. There were many of them in the Tucson newspapers about my father's divorce settlement. Now, he was going to fight, and he did fight by starting the procedure and launching the divorce action himself in the beginning. Then he wrote letters to the church saying Satan was attacking the church. And as I said, that's like me going out here in the street and hitting someone in the face and walking in here and telling you people Satan's about to attack the church. But finally, after about two and a half or three years now of court struggles and pre-trial processes in which they have spent allegedly anywhere from six million to two million on the attorneys, what I had known all along was going to happen, did happen, that is they would settle out of court. Because the last thing in the world they wanted was my dad up on that stand and the lawyers and all this, the newspaper reporters there, and just a great big mess. The newspapers have alleged all the way from a three million settlement to a 1.7 million settlement to only perhaps 2.5 million settlement, that's half of an alleged five million dollar bank account of my father's in Tucson, to a payment of $150,000 per year for the rest of her life, plus the home in Tucson with everything in it, which is worth probably close to a million dollars, plus two cars, a Mercedes, and a Ferrari, I believe. And other than that, she doesn't get much, but I've already had letters and a few phone calls from beleaguered people in the worldwide church that were quite upset. Of course, they don't really believe that, nor do they tell that story when people dial the 800 number out in Pasadena. When they dial that number and they ask for information, they're told, well, according to what we know, uh, she got something like, I think, only 30000 Well, I don't think so. I think it was a great deal more than that because I know that originally the reason my dad was suing was because she requested $1.7 million plus a salary for life plus the house and all the furniture in it. Now, that's got to be, you know, along the line of what uh, Johnny Carson's getting sued for or people like Richard Burton leave behind when they marry somebody like Liz Taylor. That is an absolute astronomical fortune, and it's been in hundreds of newspapers, so I'm not really breaching any code of etiquette. I'm not indulging in, in scurrilous rumor. I'm not attacking anyone. I'm telling you I've got clipping after clipping after clipping, even with my picture in it. Uh, some of them are obscene. It, it's, it's shameful the way they drag my dad's name and reputation through the mud at his great late age. And I'm wondering, what's he bought? You know, what did he pay for? The idea seems to be, and the attorney who was involved in the case told me that all the attorneys were going to be absolutely sworn to silence. And when he pays the woman, she is supposed to keep her mouth shut and all my father is supposed to be able to say is, we have come to a divorce settlement. That's all they're supposed to say. Yet the papers are out here absolutely assassinating my dad, and I'm wondering, what has he bought? He was supposed to buy silence. There's no silence. The newspapers are taking him apart. And from a son's standpoint, with his grandchildren and so on, it isn't really a pleasant prospect. There are just too much that is wrong, and I know Jack and I would agree if we sat down and discussed the word back, and I've discussed that before. It has nothing to do with the sermon I have for you today, but going back, I've talked about before. My father wrote a letter uh, 
I think in January, in which he said this year he didn't think they would have to borrow $1 million to make payroll. I want to just say something. Maybe, and don't raise your hands. How many of you here, I'm tempted to say, but don't raise your hands, are so insolvent that you're juggling your bills? There may be some that are. Well, if you're in that situation where the electric company's already giving you the third notice and they're now going to the big red thing, you know, final notice, we're going to turn it over to the collection agency, the people from whom you're purchasing your car said, final notice, we're going to come, and a guy's going to sneak in your driveway with a set of keys and drive it away. Uh, you're juggling. You're saying, well, I think I'll pay the rent now, and then when I get my next paycheck, I'll go ahead and maybe keep the lights on, but I can do without my telephone for a month. I mean, when people get into that kind of a situation, robbing Peter to pay Paul, juggling bills, have a float on their checkbook, write out checks on Thursday, and then hope they don't bounce before Monday, it just tears you up inside. It is an agonizing situation to be in, of being under the gun, thinking people are going to take away your home, shut off your electricity, take away your car. Let me tell you, since we have begun here in Tyler in 1978, we have not had to juggle our bills. Never once, as the president of the Church of God International, have I had to borrow money to make payroll. When I was president of Ambassador College and executive vice president of the Worldwide Church of God, on several occasions, on like a Thursday, I had to sign a note with my own signature, and it was only on my signature. They trusted us because we were, quote, big. Wells Fargo Bank, $1 million. And the interest, of course, was just computed on a daily basis. I was told, you got to do that or we can't make payroll. Why can't we wait? Why can't we wait for the, for the weekend? Because most of our people rush immediately to the supermarket, immediately to their bank account. Some of them cash it and get cash. And because these checks will bounce and it will ruin our credit at the bank. Let me tell you, a work that says, we've got $100 million a year, but when they're spending on 105 or $6 million a year, is not a healthy organization. It's just so many more goose eggs piled up behind your own private checkbook. Your checkbook may say 340. Theirs may say, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions. But they're in bigger trouble than you are as a private citizen juggling bills between the electric company and the automobile agency. They really are. Now, my dad was saying in a letter recently, they didn't have to borrow this year a million dollars to make payroll. Then I think in a later letter it said that they had to change their mind and go ahead and do it. But anyway, the point was, he said that, that they needed to build up cash reserves, so once again he had to ask them to sacrifice. And I thought, well, boy, I'll tell you, uh, good news is bad news. I got good news. We don't have to borrow money, but I got bad news. We need to sacrifice to build up reserves just in case. And I thought, when do we ever get a breathing space? I said to my cronies years ago, I am not qualified to be my father's successor. Now, I said that in a sense tongue-in-cheek. I meant I can't write that kind of a letter. I don't know how. I can't do it. I can't tell people, as long as I was living in a home that was provided for me by Ambassador College, and I paid rent on it, but I didn't own it, but the house was not threatened. I wasn't living in a double-wide trailer with a defective window box air conditioner. I'm not going to be able to write a letter to tell people on fixed income, plumbers, people out of a job, middle-aged people, farmers, you go to the bank and you mortgage your home 
And if the banker wants to know why you want the money, you slide to him a little bit. I can't write letters like that and tell people to sacrifice until they see me sacrificing. If they see me sacrificing, they see me move out of that home, and I live into a, move into an old used motor home, boy, I'll write them a letter and I'll say, guess what I did, and here's a picture where I live, will you all join me and let's all sacrifice, but otherwise I'm not qualified to write that kind of a letter. So there are a lot of things that I would say, especially, you know, having the power to write that which is wrong and to cancel a few obligations. Uh, I would not be a corporate executive, and God would not force me to be, I'm sure, where I saw checks coming by my desk made out in the name of Stanley R. Rader for $300,000 a year for doing nothing. You see what I mean? I mean, I just, I'm up against the wall, you got the gun, I'm saying I surrender, but there's no way that I could be a party to that. Or the check says Ramona Armstrong, tens of thousands of dollars, or it says a lot of these other people like cooks, maids, chauffeurs, and butlers for people that are on other salaries that have their own uh, little, little perks coming along. I couldn't be part of it. I was making too much noise and not being part of what was going on, which is why I got the axe in the first place. And unless it could be righted, then I couldn't, quote, go back. Now, if we want to go forward, if a whole new structure could be put together, a whole new corporate entity, if they all came over here, let's say, and we moved on, and we had an unsalaried professional ministry whose hearts and whose dedication and whose spiritual beliefs and convictions were grounded and rooted in the Bible, not in the orders of the man who pays their salary, and who were loyal, dedicated, faithful men to Jesus Christ, irrespective of what their human leader might say, that would be a whole new different ball game too. And it, it could be just marvelous, and I agree 100%. I have, uh, no one has complained more, I guess, in a sense. I don't mean complained. I don't think it's been with that attitude in mind about sort of being bottled up or feeling stifled or feeling like, yes, I'd like to have a larger forum or I'd like to be talking to the millions instead of the few thousands. And we're just now beginning to break out now and begin to be on uh, television, at least cable in cities all over the country. And that we, we think of the power and how it's wasted in another organization. It just grinds on you, and you think, oh, if we could just be getting this message out. And I feel that way as well. By the way, I want to tell you that I have now, uh, just this morning, I was doing some reading at home because I had the entire, well, entire, I've got a great deal more that's to be added to that, but the United States in Prophecy booklet will be in final typesetting and paste-up before too much longer, and will be a very thick, comprehensive booklet, and instead of being like my father's booklet, which merely identifies who we are in the prophecies of the Bible. It will go on to give a very powerful witness and a warning. In effect, in the end of the booklet, there will be prophecies of Ezekiel, of even the book of Lamentations, of Hosea, the prophecies of Jeremiah, etc., of the book of Revelation, of Second Thessalonians 2, of the yoke that is laid upon Israel by the mother church and the fatherland, all of it clearly identified, Germany and prophecy. The booklet will not only identify who is Israel, but it will go on to tell people, since we are Israel, you need to know that everywhere you discover Israel in connection with the, re the uh, Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord, Israel is in a condition of national 
privation, hardship, and captivity from which Christ releases them at his return. This one booklet I want to have so complete so that if a listener to our telecast reads only that one booklet, our work is over where they are concerned, if you see what I'm saying. They have been given a powerful witness and a warning. They have had the gospel preached to them that the kingdom of God is going to come, and they've been given a succinct scenario of exactly what their country is going to go through in the next few years, and whether they believe it or not doesn't make any difference. They have been warned, and I think that's going to be a real powerful booklet. Another one I'm working on now, I'm working on two at the same time, and I've about got this one finished, is called Why Me? But that is merely a title to avoid the same title my father had, which really is one on the purpose of human life. And it's a kind of a why were you born, who are you, where are you going, what is man, what is God, what is the purpose of God. And it shows that we are to be born of God and that we are actually to be uh, prototypes during this human physical life and eventually to be a member of the very family of God. It also will be one of the most important booklets in stock that we've got that I can advertise time and again on the telecast. I've been working on both of those. They're both my desk at one time, and I'll work on one for a couple of days and the other one. And one of them has been, uh, we've been trying to get the uh, type back from our typesetter, and I just got it and was reading some of it this morning. So those should be in the works very, very shortly. Watch Magazine is now all set to type, and the design and the paste-up process on that will be underway this coming week. We've got a gorgeous color photograph for the cover that has been uh, sent to us from one of the color agencies. We have that, and I think that that will be in the printing phase now within another couple of weeks or so. I'm not sure just how long. It may drag on a little longer than that, take a little while to put it all together, but we'll have a, just a beautiful issue of Watch Magazine out before too much longer. I did what? Just wanted to do two TV this last week. Uh, two, I guess. One on Tuesday and one on Thursday or Friday, whenever it was. Anyway, we'll do some more next week. Uh, Jack said we had 121 letters today, and we hope to have maybe a couple hundred plus tomorrow. And uh, on the other stations, Akron and uh, Shreveport and Chicago, and then, of course, TNN will also be on the air. Maybe little by little, TNN will sort out their problems, and uh, people will hear where we are, and we'll begin getting a very big mail on that. I have had some experiences over the years with individuals who, for one reason or another, have gone into charismatic religion. When I was a boy up in Oregon, my father had experiences with members of the Church of God Seventh Day who spoke in tongues or who had various charismatic experiences. And oftentimes you encounter people who, because of a deep problem of conscience, of being unable to feel really close to God or unable to feel forgiven or unable to feel that their prayers are being heard, or who, through various other emotional stimuli, like crises in their lives, divorce, loss of a loved one, death in the family, loss of their job, some disorienting thing that really just goes right through the top on the pressure scale, brings about a kind of an emotional revolution in their lives, and they seek an outlet. I've seen it happen to members and brethren who have been attending with us here in Tyler since 1978. I've seen some go into it and come back out of it. I was very closely associated with, I, sh I don't mean associated, it's a bad word, knowledgeable of, and uh, I 
interviewed. I had whole members, a group of them, I think of about 40 once, including a couple of the leaders of the so-called Jesus people. The Jesus Now, the Up With Jesus movement in Southern California, when a lot of them were saying, get high on Jesus. And they were wading into the surf, you know, hundreds of them, all holding hands and claiming as they ran out into the surf, screaming the name of Jesus, that that was baptism. Now my question is, what, or if you prefer who, is the Holy Spirit of God? The word spirit, as we know in the Bible, was not written in the English language. We have an English word, and we use it in many ways, like we have the word inspiration. You know what inspiration really means? You have the word respiration. Re-spire-ation. Re means again. Spire or spear or spirit means air, and ation means the action. And that's the termination of the English word. Respiration means breathing in and breathing out. But the root word of spirit is in that word. Expiration, like exhaling. When you expire, you exhale your spirit, or you breathe out your air. And that's what it means in the English language. So, the English word spirit, and as we use it in inspiration, which means really to have a heightened imagination, to have a vivid or a creative mind, to be highly appreciative of something like inspiring music, or an inspiration of the moment, or to be inspired to do something, to have a heightened expectancy in your mind, or something like that. There's nothing threatening about the word. The Hebrew word, ruach, is akin to our English word, and it meant wind or air, but it can also be used in the same way that we use English words in many different uh, senses or usages. The English word saw, how many usages are there? I saw my brother yesterday. I pick up the saw. I saw a log. Well, now that's three separate usages spelled exactly, but the only way you know the difference is by rote memory. And so it is with the Hebrew word ruach. It is used of man, meaning his life, his air, his wind, his chemical, mortal, temporal existence. It is used of his attitude of mind. He's in a bad spirit, a rotten spirit, or a good spirit, or my spirits are up. Or it's used of the Spirit of God. It's used in several different ways in the Bible, and I want to show you that. Because one of the greatest pagan doctrines, and one that actually conceals one of the greatest truths of God, is the doctrine of the so-called Trinity, or the belief that the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, as I've said before, and a lot of you have had Protestant church background, probably, if you were to ask to identify, to be asked to identify, Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, how would you do it if an artist in a Protestant church were to portray to you these three beings of the triumvirate called the Trinity? God the Father is rather vague in most people's minds. Catholics have a mother instead. They have Mary overshadowing the baby. But in the minds of most Protestants, maybe some of you were Methodists or Baptists or Church of Christ or whatever, have you ever really had portrayed to your mind a visage which to you shows a countenance? So you envision, you envision in your mind eyes and a nose and a face. I don't think so, for God the Father. If there was anything you had in your mind, it was just sort of, well, brightness. It was like a, a, a brilliant, white-haired, judge-like figure 
maybe from some of the old woodcuts and pictures from way back, Leonardo da Vinci and, and uh, some of those that had the sculptures or the paintings or whatever in the Sistine Chapel and elsewhere in, in Rome, you thought of God as being a white-haired patriarch on a throne, but just sort of blazing light. But there was no real facial figure that you saw. But now Jesus Christ, you could have the favorite picture you see in Bible bookstores or in the Bibles you can buy, and you'd say, oh yeah, that's the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you kind of think, well, I know what he looks like. What about the Holy Spirit? Was it ever portrayed to you in your religious background as anything other than sort of a ghost? Because, you know, they chose that word in 1611 because they believed in trolls and poltergeists and hobgoblins and ghosts. And so in people's imagination, the Holy Spirit was wraith-like, wispy, sort of like not hooded vengeance, but mysterious, standing back, shadowy. Does that come close to what you might have thought in your mind? Just vague, shadowy, like wispy or wraith-like, like a spiritual substance of some sort, like smoke or, or a cloud-like veil of wraith-like mist. But there was no face. You didn't think of broad shoulders or strong arms, did you? Or, or blue eyes or black uh, when you thought of the Holy Spirit, did you? Why is that? Well, that's because there's never been a sermon by a Protestant minister on really who is the Holy Spirit and what does he or it, if that's what they choose to say, really do or what does it or he look like or what is the function of the Holy Spirit and probably never in your life if you attended a Protestant church have you sat down and had a Protestant minister take you through the Bible about all of the scriptures to educate you so that mentally in your mind you knew and you knew clearly what is the Holy Spirit they just accept it, it's just taken for granted then they preach about love and the Spirit and so on but they don't really define or explain now, Jesus Christ of Nazareth promised that we would receive the Spirit of God. And I'll get into that a little later on. But first of all, I want to show you some examples. One of the first places the word Spirit is used in the Bible, or many of them, even clear back in the book of Genesis, about the heart or the spirit of an ancient Pharaoh. But let's turn to Exodus 35. And notice here two usages that I've already mentioned. In Exodus 35, here was the building of the ancient tabernacle in the wilderness. The Eternal told Moses to gather all the people together and to have them, like a communal effort, build this tabernacle. In verse 5, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Eternal. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it. An offering of the Eternal, gold and silver and brass, etc. Verse 21, And they came, that is all the children of Israel, everyone whose heart stirred him up. Now, was it really his heart? You see, here again, that's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. We use it in English, so it is translated out of the Hebrew. The word heart can mean the organ in your chest, or it can mean your attitude. Your, your heart is not that which really stirs you up, is it? It might pump faster because of adrenaline, but adrenaline is only released when the mind causes it to, so it's a metaphor. Whose heart stirred him up, and everyone whom his spirit made willing. Greek word, I'm sorry, Hebrew word ruach, and the intent obvious his mood, his emotion, his mind, or his attitude. 
And they brought the eternal's offering of the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and for all of his service and for the holy garments. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted. See the interchangeability of spirit made willing, willing-hearted, or whose heart stirred him up. They offered an offering, etc. Verse 29, the children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the eternal, every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of work, etc. Verse 31, speaking of the workmen by name, some of them who were to be artisans working on the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle, he has filled him with the Spirit of God. Oh, then how can Christ be the first begotten of the Spirit? Well, it goes on to say, in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, and to devise clever, cunning, or curious works, and to work in gold, and in silver, and in brass, and in the cutting of stones. So God added special talents or proclivities by the power of His Spirit, which actually improved the artistry and the workmanship of the human hand. He did not beget them as His children, but He added spiritual quotient, let's say, or abilities to their natural human physical mind. In Judges 15, 19, I won't turn to that, and also in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 12, that Judges 15, 19 and 1 Samuel 30 and verse 12, it shows two widely separated accounts of a young man who was about to die. He ate some fig cakes, they brought him some water, maybe it was honey, and it said, quote, his spirit came unto him again, and he revived. In these cases, food and water after a long abstinence, or maybe a, a long run, or something like that, revived their spirit. Let's turn to Psalm 51. Here, within a couple of verses, is a case, and there are dozens and dozens of them in the Bible, and I've only chosen a very few to illustrate the point, is the example of two separate usages of the Hebrew word ruach. Psalm 51 and verse 10. He is praying, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Notice again the heart for the character or the quality of mind or attitude, and renew a right spirit within me. The margin says steadfast spirit, or willing spirit. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy holy spirit from me. Now, you only know the difference because of the word that precedes it. It's the same word in the Hebrew, ruach. Renew a right ruach within me, and take not thy holy ruach from me. Obviously, the latter means God's Holy Spirit, but the Bible further tells us it was the spirit of the one who dealt with the Israelites, who was which member of the Godhead? Was this the Father to whom Christ prayed? No. John 1, Hebrews 1, all the scriptures that absolutely prove that the God of the Old Testament, the one who was known as the Eternal, the Ever-Living One, the one who said, I am, to Moses, is that individual who became Jesus Christ and was born of the Virgin Mary. They never saw, they never knew, never heard of the Father. Jesus came to reveal the Father, and until Jesus came to reveal him to mankind, the Father God was not known except on a rare occasion in a vision to a select handful of prophets like Daniel, who saw the Ancient of Days coming before the Ancient of Days in a vision. The rest of them knew nothing of the Father or the Son. There was no Son of God during their time. There was just God. There was just Yahweh. Or there was uh, El or Eloah or Elohim, and they knew nothing of more than one member. They only knew of God, the divinity in heaven. 
And so to whom did David pray? The one who later was born of the Virgin Mary and became Jesus Christ the Son. So this is not David saying that he was already begotten of the Father God in the way that we can be since the day of Pentecost, but praying to the one who later became Christ, saying, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. The Hebrew word ruach once again. In the one case, renew a right attitude within me. Good translation for the word spirit. In the other case, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Obviously, spiritual essence, the mind and the power of God. In Psalm 139.7, Psalm 139.7 is another very good one of which there are many, many in the Psalms, and I've chosen just a very few, as I said. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the Hebrew word is the grave, behold, you are there, etc. So he's saying that God's Holy Spirit is universal. Wherever he went to the deepest well, and even as uh, Jonah in the belly of the great fish said that he was able to cry out to God from there, as we've said before, the best position perhaps in the world to pray in is hanging upside down in the proverbial well, because you'll really have your heart in it, and God will hear you. So David says, whether I ascend into the bowels of the earth or mount up to the highest mountain, there you are, and God's Holy Spirit is there. In John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus said that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, a scripture with which we are quite familiar and I want to turn to John 14, and we read these every year at the Passover, and in verse 23 and 24. John 14, 23 and 24. And then in John 15 and verse 26. He is talking about the other comforter who is going to come. And he is saying, I want to get this right quickly, in John 15 and verse 26, I'll read on to it. But when the Comforter, the Advocate, the margin says, or the Paraclete, which is a Greek word, come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth, which proceeds from the Father, He. The Greek word is ekinos, and it can be translated it. It can never be translated she. It's a pronoun. It's merely a pronoun. It can be translated he, or that one, or that thing, like in some languages, the Latin languages, the chair she or the door he, you know, they have uh, those uh, meanings on their various objects, like a table is the feminine or a door is the masculine or whatever. No, the door is masculine and feminine too in Spanish, isn't it? La puerta and la mesa. And uh, so it's la or it's el, depending upon whether it's masculine or feminine. Well, in the same way in the Greek language it's masculine or feminine. This is never feminine. Isn't it interesting, when I was on that dumb show over there, uh, what was his name, uh, the young blonde guy, uh, never heard of him before they called me, uh, John Ankerberg. Anyway, he had loaded the audience with some people who were really going to try to, to throw me a left curve. I wish he had run the whole tape and not just the way he clipped it and edited it out. I explained to him what I'm going to explain to you in a moment, which I've explained before time and time again. And the proof of that is in Matthew, the first chapter, and I won't turn to it right now, but where it said Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So I asked John, and I made him answer before his own audience. I said, all right, you say the Father is one person. Is that right? Yes, that's right. All right, the Father, God, we see him clearly over here. 
Christ the Son is the second person. Is that right? Yes, that is right. All right, Christ the Son. Now we have two up here. You say the Holy Spirit is a distinct third person. Is that what you believe? Yes, that's what he believed. All right, now you have three. Now we turn to Matthew 1, verse 18. Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Which one of the three? Well, it's this one here. It's not the Father, is it? Over there, right? Okay. To whom did Jesus pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, which art in heaven. He said, The Father which dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. He talked about he had come to reveal the Father. It is said in the book of Hebrews, he was made in the exact similitude of the Father. The Greek word is character, the exact stamp impress of the Father. How come Jesus prayed to the wrong Father? You know, the man would not answer me. He just was struck dumb. He would not comment. There was no comment. So he has a fellow from the audience claiming that in the Hebrew language, the word Elohim means not just the plural ending, meaning more than one without telling you exactly how many more than one, like any other plural terminal or termination in the English language, but it literally meant three. I think he put that on the air. Isn't that marvelous that it's not in the Catholic Encyclopedia? The Presbyterians never heard of it. Not one divinity school, not one seminary, not one great university, not one of the great Bible encyclopedias, not the Encyclopedia Biblica, which is a left-wing kind of a libertine one, not John Kiddo's Bible encyclopedia. None of them ever say, not one commentary ever made that claim before. But some character off the streets somewhere in Chattanooga, Tennessee, wanders into this program, and he is going to hit me with this and say, it means free. Well, absolute nonsense. If it, if it were, if there were the slightest hope that the word Elohim meant three, the Catholics would have been trumpeting that to the skies for centuries. But no church has ever made such a claim. But this guy does. So I put these people down, and they want to come back and come back. So finally I said, look, we're getting nowhere. I said, you can argue with me from now uh, until the cows come home, and you will never convince me of the Trinity. They left that in. They left that part in. But all of my, you know, statements that I gave them, they took out. It says here in the 15th chapter of John, he will testify of me. So some people think, aha, there it is, you see. That means another person. Well, we'll go along and we will see whether that is what is really implied here or not. The word itself does not imply that. In John, let's see, I said uh, 16, 15, all right, 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, the paraclete, or the advocate, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The word him, again a pronoun, can easily be translated out of the ekinos. The word ekinos is in the Greek, it. Either one. And when he or it, but it's masculine, coming from God, therefore the translators chose he. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and so on. Now let's go to the first chapter of the book of Acts where the promise of the Holy Spirit of God is made. And the disciples are told that they must wait for power from on high. 
He says in verse 4, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. We just read of that, which was the comforter, the paraclete, the advocate, which was to come. Saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with. Now to the Greek word baptizo, that's all it, it means, means, or is pronounced like that, and spelled very similarly to our English word, means to be plunged into, or to lower into, or to immerse, to completely surround by, to be baptized into. You will be baptized with the Holy Ghost. King James English. None of the other English versions for R. Fenton, Goodspeed, Moffat, the English Revised, the Revised Standard, the Living Bible, uh, the Ivan Pan and Greek Numerics, none of them have the word ghost. They all use the word spirit because that was only a 1611 superstition and it's too bad that the English, you know, the uh, most popular English Bible is still the old King James and I use it for that reason. But it's awkward and the word ghost is not implied. It is not a ghost-like, wraith-like something at all, but the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Now how can you be plunged into, how can you be immersed under a person? When the Bible speaks of being baptized with the Holy Spirit, can you be baptized into a person? Just think about it. Think of how the Holy Spirit is used in many, many terms Many, many examples in the Bible by analogy as air, wind, water, and fire. All of these things have power. They have actual physical, chemical uh, shape, weight, you might say, not shape. Air, however, can be measured. It can be weighed. It can be compressed. It is composed of life-giving gases without which neither we nor all of the plants or fish or bacteria or anything else could live on this earth. And therefore is one of the best analogies of all and one of the one most often used by Jesus Christ to explain about the activity, the action, the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So when they were come together, all of this did occur. They were told, why do you stand gazing up? Verse 11, he is going to come exactly as you've seen him. Now chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with all, with one accord, in agreement, in one place. Now let's see what really happened on that day of Pentecost. Suddenly, so it was something that they didn't expect. It came suddenly. From heaven. Now where did the sound come from? You have to, to, to think of what I'm talking about here, and let me just picture for you what people used to do in so-called tarry meetings. Maybe they still do it. And they go on and on and on and they tarry. They didn't know what the word tarry meant, I guess. And I guess it was just a real popular word back in the 30s and 40s. But we will tarry till the Lord come. Well, that means wait. All it means is wait. So they had tarry meetings. Wait around till somebody, quote, got the spirit, end quote. Some churches had the attitude that you all sat in stony silence. There was a movie I'll never forget, and this little kid who was given his blistering look because they're all sitting around, I guess a bunch of Mormons or Puritans or, or Amish or whatever they were, and finally this little kid pops up, a little floppy hat, and he says, God is love, and sits back down. Boy, everybody looks at him, all red-faced, and his mother nudges him, and his dad's embarrassed, and the, and the pastor of the church looks over there, and this little kid is waiting, taking part in this real spiritual meeting, and he couldn't think of anything else to say, so he popped to his feet and says, God is love. Well, they had the kind of a service where they sat still. 
There wasn't a preacher, and they, quote, waited for the Spirit to move them. And when somebody had the Spirit, quote, unquote, he jumped to his feet, and out would come all of this stuff. Then somebody else would sit down, would uh, jump to his feet, and he would say something. In these tarry meetings, they begin to moan and groan. And they say, bless you, Jesus. Now, you can take any phrase in the English language you want to, like, I'll have an onion, I'll have an onion, I'll have an onion. Or give me a slice of bread, a slice of bread, a slice of bread. Or you can just say, oom, 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 like some of them do. They have in these idiotic religions their mantra. And their mantra is this sound that they pronounce. Now, don't do it, you know, to where you go crazy, because you might go crazy. But do it sometime, just a little short time, uh, to prove to you what I'm saying. You can take any English word and pronounce that word a couple dozen times, one after the other, until that word loses all meaning, and suddenly it's just a nonsensical sound. And it doesn't make sense anymore. Well, these people would do that. And they'd say, bless you, Jesus, bless you, Jesus, bless you, Jesus. And pretty soon, in my opinion, they'd go nuts. They'd go crazy. And I think they're opening up their mind for something other than the Holy Spirit of God, if you get my meaning. Notice what the Bible does say and what the Bible does not say. First of all, the sound that came, came, verse 2, from heaven. Not from human throats or glottises or tongues or hard or soft palates or teeth or mouths or noses, but from heaven. It came suddenly. It didn't come gradually as they worked it up, heated it up, and pronounced it and began to work with it for 20 or 30 minutes or suspected Portuguese epithets, it was the sound of a mighty wind. I heard a tornado go by about a quarter mile away one time. Benny and I were crouched under a tree up here on the lake, and we told that story. I was digging down, hanging on to the roots of the tree. And even the trunk, and the trunk was as big around as this pulpit, and it was swaying, and I could feel it creaking, and I mean, I was a little concerned. Well, it sounded just like a freight train, just like people had told me. It sounded like a train rumbling by, and it went by just across the lake. Tearing up trees and everything else. And, of course, Benny's boat was sunk when we got back to where it was, poor guy. And we had quite a mess that day. But let me tell you, if you ever, ever heard a tornado going by, a mighty rushing wind sounds about like a passing freight train. It roars with a deep-throated rumble as it tears up Jack, as they say. Not Jack, not you, Jack, but, I mean, if they use that expression, why, I don't know. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them, now here again is a very sad translation. When it says cloven tongues, that is absolutely ridiculous. It does not belong in the Bible. The Greek should not be rendered that way into the English. It should read flames of fire equally distributed among them. You know, we talk about tongues of flame. I don't know why, because I guess a human tongue... Uh, flitters around in the mouth like that, so they think that, you know, in a campfire you see flame, and the way it acts is it feeds on wood, and they want to call it tongues of fire, looking like a tongue. Well, they could call it a leaf of fire, or a branch of fire, or a ripple, or whatever of fire, but they chose a tongue of fire. Very unfortunate translation. There appeared unto them, paraphrased, in a really accurate English, equally distributed flickering or licking or whatever you say. They talk about a fire licking at the wood, which is also unfortunate. Tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them, almost like a fiery little crown. And, of course, there were many of them there, 120 in all. And, of course, the original 12, which were part of that whole aggregate of 120. And they were all filled with the Holy 
spirit. Now here again, first of all, we had an example where they were going to be plunged into. That's an analogy. That's a figure of speech. They're going to be baptized into the Holy Spirit. You're not immersed into or baptized into a person. Are all of them filled with a person? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other glossa in the Greek or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. I won't read it all. All of these people are named. All of these various tongues and languages, Parthians, Medes, Edomites, etc., verse 9, 10, and 11, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak, verse 11, the latter part, in our languages, the word tongue can be used of the organ in your mouth, it can be used of the language which you speak. We speak in the English tongue, we use our tongues to speak the English language or tongue. We hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So it wasn't something unknown, it was something intelligent, something they understood, and what was the greatest work of God to that date? but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we've got corroboration right here in this chapter, because when we see in the English language what Peter was saying, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were all amazed and were in doubt. In doubt about what? In doubt about what they heard, which was an intelligent rendering of an eyewitness account of what the disciples had seen and experienced, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others mocked and said, These men are full of new wine. Why? Not because of the way the apostles acted. Not because of the intensity with which they spoke. Not because of any sort of Babylonish confusion. One man spoke at a time. They said, He's drunk. Why? Because the apostles were leaping and jumping? No. Get it in your mind and get it clearly, because this is the truth. They said it because of what they said. You see, here is, many, many years later, Luke, going back, perhaps it was written about 60, 61 A.D., because it leaves the Apostle Paul at the close of the book of Acts, in his second Roman imprisonment, in his Roman imprisonment, I should say, from which he never emerged, and he was, of course, killed later on. That took place approximately 59 to 61 A.D., or approximately 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Since the book of Acts concludes in about 61 A.D., it must have been written thereabouts. It may have taken a year in writing, but I doubt it. Maybe a few months, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few days. But the point is, this was written approximately 30 years after the event. Luke is the chronographer, or the chronologist, or the writer, or the author. And Luke is remembering very well, because he was one of the men who was there as an eyewitness who saw all of this occurring. Now, he is going to tell you a little later on in the account exactly what Peter said. But when you're reading the narrative here that Luke puts it together, he is saying they mocked. Why do they mock? Because of what Peter and because of what the others said. These men are full of new wine, or these men are full of something that made them drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said, You men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, these are not drunk, the wine shops aren't even open yet. It's but nine o'clock in the morning. That's what the third hour of the day meant. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit. Bible. God is a distinct person. Even the Protestants agree. 
the Catholics agree, right? God the Father. He says, I will pour out of my spirit. Now the spirit is analogous to something which may be poured out. Poured out from God the Father. It is analogous to water into which we may be plunged or immersed. It is analogous to something which comforts us. It is analogous to fire, as we will see, the flame, to that which is invisible, air or wind, and also to water which can be poured out. So here God identifies the Spirit of God as something which he possesses and which he is able to, quote, pour out. And there again it's an analogy. The analogy of pouring, the word pour, has to do with water. You don't pour air, and you don't pour fire. Neither literally, technically, do you pour the Spirit. It is a metaphor, it's a simile, it's an analogy, it is a figure of speech. I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Verse 18 on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And then it goes on to say, those that call on the name of Christ will be saved. Now, in verse 38, at the conclusion of this great sermon, brief sermon, really, that Peter preached, of which we have only, in a sense, an outline. He may have talked for 20 or 30 minutes or an hour. We don't really know. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness or the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God must come into a human being as a result of repentance, as a result of baptism under and with water, as a watery grave, or else we have no life in us. In Acts 5 and verse 32, you will see a little further explanation as Peter again is preaching and he said we in verse 32 are witnesses of these things meaning about the resurrection of Christ and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to them that obey him the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey God now in 1st Corinthians 14 the most important chapter in all the Bible, of which there are dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures, verses, many of them in the Psalm, many of them in the book of Job, having to do with the spirit in man, etc. But 1 Corinthians 14 is the one chapter in which the Apostle Paul had to deal with a problem getting underway in the Corinthian church, which you might say was a charismatic movement. People in the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. Incest, stealing, lying, bearing false witness, hating, drunkenness on the Passover. They were really a kind of a gross church congregation. They had every conceivable human problem that human beings can have. And a lot of them knew about it, and Paul is really having to take them to account. It's rather a strange thing, but perhaps it is axiomatic, as I mentioned briefly at the beginning of this sermon, that when people get into a big guilt complex, and they can't feel forgiven. A lot of times we, we want to feel as human beings. We want the emotions to be involved. Reading it and saying, all right, I did repent. I knew what I was doing. I knew what sin was, 1 John 3, 4, the transgression of the law. I knew that was the Ten Commandments. I knew it was the Ten Commandments as Christ magnified them in the Sermon on the Mount. So I knew that even when I got angry and I hated someone mentally, I was as good as a murderer, and I knew I had to repent of that. 
I had to repent of lusting, of lying, of exaggerating, of shading the truth, of cheating. I had to repent of just being an egotistical, braggadocio maniac of some sort. I had to repent of a rapid, uh, rapidly flaring temper. I had to repent of being whatever, you know, gross or foul-mouthed or taking the name of God in vain. And I did that years ago. But now I've sinned. I've done something horrible. And years ago, I, I was re repentant, and I went to a minister, and he baptized me. And that felt good. I mean, I remember how the water felt. And they lowered me down in the tank, and the water closed over me, and I came up, and, and I was doing something. I took my body, and I got in my old trousers and an old shirt, and I physically did something. I waded into a cold lake or an ice-cold river. I got baptized in a fish pond or a bathtub or a portable rubber tank. But I did something physically. And when I came up out of the water, water dripping down over my hair, these ministers put their hands on my head, and I remember how heavy their hands felt. And I remember them praying that I would receive the Holy Spirit of God. And I felt good. And when it was all over, I just knew I'd been forgiven. But now I've sinned. And I've prayed about it. But I don't feel anything. Ever had that experience? Well, people have that experience, and it's almost axiomatic, that when people decide they need to feel instead of realize, they will seek a charismatic kind of an emotional experience. They want to experience. They want to feel. They want it to become now of the emotion, of the physical body, of the mouth, of the sensory organs, the perceptiveness of touch and of, of hearing and of speaking and of sight and of sound and so on, rather than just quietly of the mind. And so they seek another experience. Now Paul is dealing with that. He says in verse 1, follow after charity. We know the famous 13th chapter is the one that talks about the greatest of all, which is love. And desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy, which means literally speak under inspiration of God's Spirit. For he that speaks, now I want to show you a little bit of education here right quickly out of the Bible. The word unknown is italicized. It doesn't belong in the Bible. That's all there is to it. You can prove it later at your leisure. It was added again by the translators. They think it belonged there, but one of the keys at the beginning of the, of the Oxford version that I have here, the King James Bible, is that the italicized words are not found in the original ancient manuscripts. They're added for, quote, clarity, end quote. That was in the mind of the translators. It is not unknown at all. And we'll see that proved in the context of this scripture, as we did see it proved back in the second chapter of the book of Acts, that those were known languages, not unknown. He said, Desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy, for he that speaks in a language, in a language, and it is a known language, but not one with which you are familiar, not one in which you have been educated, the one in which you have been brought up speaks not unto men, but unto God. For no man understands. And the word him is added italicized. Howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. All right. Someone comes to me and says, and please don't, I, I, I pray in the prayer language. You know what I'm going to tell you? Why well, brag about it. Now, now please follow what I'm saying. Here is a Bible scripture with which Garner Ted Armstrong has to deal. And you've got a deal. This tells me in the Word of God that someone who is given the gift of tongues or of languages may genuinely, literally, 
be expressing himself to God in a language he doesn't understand. But prayer is private, and prayer is personal, and my Bible tells me when you pray, enter into your closet and pray to your Father which is in heaven, who is in secret, and he will reward you openly. And when you fast, don't appear to fast. When you pray, don't appear to pray. The, the publicans love to pray in public, and the Pharisees love to pray in public, and so on. You don't brag about praying. You don't go to some other person. Anybody that ever does that to me, I know it's false. How do I know it? Because instead of just in their own mind and heart saying, that is marvelous, that's great, that, that, uh, that's fabulous, that I can, I can somehow, that happens when I pray in great intensity and I feel like I'm really communicating with God and getting through to Him and keeping it quiet and realizing I'm really reaching my Father in Heaven in prayer, they want to brag about it. They want to tell somebody else. That's when I begin to doubt it. That's when I begin to say, I don't think so. That's not real. Because if they're really praying to God in secret, they will have the Spirit of God, which is a law-abiding Spirit, and which agrees with all that Jesus Christ taught, which is pray in secret, pray in private, and don't brag about it. Don't go tell somebody else, I prayed today. Nonsense. God knows that, and if He knows it, hey, you're home free, to use the vernacular. You're home free. You've spoken to God, so why tell your neighbor about it, for pity's sake? I don't tell you every conversation I have with my wife. You don't tell me the conversations you have with your husband or your wife. Things are private. I don't go bragging to people about conversations I had with God this morning. Anybody that does, I was talking to the Lord this morning, and takes it, you know, like Norman Vincent Peale one time said, Lord, get me a taxi. I knew he was lying right then, because the Lord is not a doorman to wait on Norman Vincent Peale when it rains in New York City. He was speaking in a great big auditorium in Pasadena, California. He said it started to rain. He said he needed some help. All the taxi filled. Lord, get me a taxi. Here came a taxi. Well, nonsense. I think the Lord's a little busier than worrying about getting Norman Vincent Peale a taxi. So it does say in the Bible, he that speaks in a tongue speaks not unto men. Ah, uh, but they want to, don't they? In fact, they insist upon it, don't they? But the Bible says, they don't speak to men. I'm a man. So don't talk to me in one of those things. I don't want to hear it. Okay? It's what the Bible says. But unto God, for no man understands. Howbeit in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he that prophesies, and it means inspired preaching or speaking, speaks unto men to edification. That constructs, it builds up. And exhortation, that exhorts and encourages. And comfort, that ameliorates and assuages. He that speaks in a tongue, a language, edifies himself. I agree. I admit it. I don't have the gift. I'm sorry. So judge me. I don't have it. And I agree with what the Word of God says. He does edify himself. That's great. But it says, he that speaks or prophesies or preaches under inspiration edifies the church. Now Paul says, I wish all of you spoke with languages. Paul wasn't going to deny them the gift. But rather, he said, if I had my druthers, you know, the way they say it, I'd rather that you prophesied. So where does he put the gift? Well, kind of secondary to preaching, speaking, educating, uplifting, edifying, exhorting, or comforting. But rather that you prophesied for greater, listen to this, those who have that problem, and I call it a problem, greater, I don't care what they think, they think that's greater. Well, that's nonsense. 
My Bible says, Greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with languages. Guess what the Bible says about what I'm doing right now? How does what I'm doing right now stack up with what some people have done in prayer? Well, they say they have a language. They will tell you in their heart and mind, they're better. My Bible says, I'm better. I'm sorry, the Bible's plain. It's very clear, and I stand on the Bible and the Word of God. It's very comforting to me. Right now, I am reading the Bible, and it is giving me comfort. It's giving me edification. I had an experience I don't want to repeat. I've had many experiences like that, where people are all just dancing around on this great big ebullient high. Do you have someone come up to you you've known for years, and suddenly you don't know them anymore, and they are bouncing around, and, and telling you that they're just gushing all this love, how are you going to handle it? Well, it's difficult. I once remember years ago, I was uh, oftentimes going down to the San Diego church. There was a fellow that had this problem. He came up to my dad. My dad is embarrassed by this type of thing, too. And when he first got to my dad, he just grabbed him. He wanted to hug him, smother him with kisses. Well, of course, he's a man. Now, that just embarrassed my dad half to death. And he was always suspicious of that guy. When the guy was first, quote, converted, end quote, he wanted to give his furniture, he wanted to sell his house, he totally misapplied what Jesus said to the young nobleman, forsake all, come and follow me, etc. He just wanted to just, you know, eschew the world and let's go off and we'll just preach Jesus and so on. And we'll leave it all behind, we'll have nothing to do with physical things like chairs and doors and furniture and fireplaces and automobiles, we'll just go wandering off into the night preaching Jesus. Well, the years went by, and I don't ever know what happened to the man, but there was an alcoholic problem that came along, and a divorce that came along, and some, some bitterness. The man came up to me one day on the Ambassador College campus. He looked kind of wild-eyed, and he was all kind of euphoric. He walked up to me, sort of walking on air, you know, and he said, You know, Ted, I'm in the spirit. And he said, Right now, I know if I wanted to, I could look up there at Mount Wilson, and tell Mount Wilson, 6,000 feet, looming up over the valley floor of Los Angeles with all the KTLA antennas sticking up out of it. To be that removed and jump into the sea. I said, why don't you do it? I want to watch. Next time you get that feeling, I want you to do it. Well, you know, the guy wasn't able to bring it off. And it didn't really, he didn't like what I said. Now, I've had to say to people like that, hey, I'm sorry, but I'm not into emotionalism. I was very emotional when I repented, and I've been very emotional when I've had to repent, because repentance is a lifelong process, and every now and then you have to do that, many times since that time. And I expect I'll be emotional again when I've got to get down on my knees and beg my God and my Savior to forgive me for some things I've done. I get emotional when I repent to other people. If I apologize to some person that I've wronged, I may do it with a choking voice and tears in my eyes. I may get emotional. I'm not normally an emotional person. So I say to the person who comes to me bouncing around, Oh, I want to love. Jesus loves you. You know what I say? Hold it, hold it, hold it. What happens tonight when you go to bed? What happens tomorrow when you get up? What happens Monday when you go back to work? What happens when you got to feed the kids and clothe the babies? What happens when somebody's sick and you got to sit up with them all night long? What happens when you're going to feed the poor? Whatever happened to the scripture that says there's a time and a season for all things, there's a time to mourn. When do you do that? When do you come down? I mean, you can't tell me you go along through life just with this abusing, oh, let's have love 100% of the time. There are people who have been taken in 
by these TV evangelists. And I need to understand a little secret I'm going to give you. They come on the air, and they're bubbly, and they're effervescent, and they cry, and they giggle, and they, they take testimonials. They'll sit there, and the person says, yes, and the Lord did. <gasps> Praise the Lord, isn't that marvelous? They're sitting there doing this all the time. Bushwah and Pishtwaddle. They don't do it all the time. They only do it in front of the camera. Put that down. Write that down, as it says in a joke somewhere. Write that down. What you're seeing for that half hour or that hour is not the way those folks live their lives. You are seeing actors that are putting it on for a temporary period of time to mesmerize and to hoodwink a television audience, and that's not the way they live their life. And yet, in spite of that fact, millions of people out here are taken in by it, and they think, oh, if my life could just be that happy all the time. You know, like little whatever her name was, tripping along, seeing Oz, and the tin can man, and the guy, Lou Air, whatever his name was, to the face of a lion, somewhere over the rainbow, uh, Wizard of Oz, here comes Gulliver, tied down by the little putchins, let's all go to the garden, tiptoe through the tulips, and smell the daisies, and, and uh, all of that. But you're going to come down, you know, you're going to come down, and you're going to deal with life. Your baby's going to mess his britches. You're going to come down when that happens. You're not going to be up there. Oh, lovely, lovely. Little Johnny, look what he did. How creative. No, I'm kidding. But anyway, beg your pardon. All right. Anyway, he said, I would that you all spoke with languages, but rather that you prophesied, for greater is he that prophesied than he that speaks with languages, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. And now, brethren, if I got you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? Now, he goes on in the example of things that give a sound and so on. How will you know? You know, I've explained before on the day of trumpets that ancient Israel had trumpet calls that actually marshaled the elders for marching and etc. and as the military does today. Verse 8, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, if it's not officer's call, it's not muster, it's not charge, or if it's not retreat, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise you, except you utter by the language words easy to be understood. How shall it be known what is spoken? You speak into the air. Paul had a problem with charismatics in the Corinthian church, and he was trying to get a handle on the problem and settle them down a little bit. And once in a while it crops up its ugly head. It's still alive and well in 1984, for pity's sake. In spite of the fact that 1 Corinthians 14 has been in the Bible gathering dust through the centuries, and people still don't understand it. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices or languages in the world, and none of them is without signification. You ever heard pidgin English? Do you know that it's actually the national tongue of one nation, and where it is? Papua. The pidgin English is the language of Papua. And if you know where that is, you're lucky, because most people don't. Verse 11. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaks a barbarian, and he that speaks shall be barbarian unto me. Even so ye, forasmuch as you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Now, a comment. That is what? That is outgoing. That is sharing. That is not incoming or self-glorifying, but the other, the experience of people speaking in this unknown, so-called unknown tongue, is self-glorifying or self-edifying. 
Wherefore, let him that speaks in a language, the word unknown is not there in the original, pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a language, he is saying that's the possibility. That possibility is distinctly there. And I agree with it because it's the Bible. My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. I agree with that statement too. Do you? That can be taken two ways. Some people have said it means the understanding of me. I don't think so because he's saying prayer and prayer is private. So I prefer the first, which is the most obvious. My understanding. I don't understand. I feel. I sense. I have an emotional contact with God. But so far as understanding, I'm not praying about a specific thing. I'm not saying, please you know, heal Aunt Martha of this or that. Or please heal my son of this or that. Or please intervene in this problem going on in the church, am I? If I'm in that euphoria of a prayer language, so to speak, I'm not praying about things. I'm just caught up in the moment in a different kind of a level of prayer that I'm not normally accustomed to. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else when you bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned say, Amen? Because he doesn't know what you're saying. doesn't understand it. At your giving a thanks, seeing he understands not what you say. For you verily give thanks well. Paul is acknowledging that. You're doing well, but the other is not edified, so it's incoming, you're helping yourself, you're enjoying it, it isn't doing the other guy any good. But I thank my God, I speak with languages more than all of you do. Rather a strange approach coming from a man who could make that claim, don't you think? Here was not a man who says to his readership here the same thing I just admitted to you. He isn't saying, I don't have that gift. I've never prayed in an unknown language or a language that is even known. He's saying, I speak with languages, with glossa, more than all of you do. But he is deprecating it. He's putting it in its place. He's saying it is less important than helping you people grow and less important than helping you understand. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a language. And I'll tell you, people that get into that would rather speak five words in gibberish and call it tongues any day, or rather speak 10,000 words in gibberish or an unknown language any day, than any number of words that somebody understands. Why? Because they are in an attitude where they actually think those are the most important spiritual credentials that you can wear. It's like the Spiritual Congressional Medal of Honor. It's the highest award you can get in the spirit world being able to babble in front of people. That's what some of them think. I've got letters from people so mad at me, so hostile, they say, Garner Ted Armstrong, till you realize you've been baptized with the Spirit, you ain't never saved. And they probably say it in that tone of voice, never coming down till the end of their phrase. Because when you talk like that, you know you are getting into a spiritual mood, and therefore. You know, because that's the way they've heard it all their lives. They write in that tone of voice. You ever hear people write in a tone of voice? I can read that tone of voice in their letters that they send me. And some of them don't like me at all. I have never heard anybody cuss like a Pentecostal. They can use words like you've never seen before. You've got to be real careful with some of those people. They do know how to swear. I've gotten some rather obscene letters from Pentecostal people putting me down, telling me all sorts of things. 
because I didn't so supposedly have the Pentecostal experience. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be children, but in understanding be men, or the full age, it says. And I won't read all of the rest of this, but let's go in verse 26, and I mentioned this recently. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If anybody speaks in a language, the word is glossa, not unknown, remember, let it be by two, or at the most by three. And that by course, meaning in order, one after the other, and let one interpret. But, if there be no interpreter, somebody comes to me and says, Brother Armstrong, I have the gift. I know how to speak in a language. God gave it to me last week. Well, I'd like to ask how, and, and what happened, and all about it, and this and that. And, and I believe that God has something He wants me to say to the congregation today. Oh, is that right? Well, who's your interpreter? That would be my first question. Who's going to interpret it? I like to hear it first. I like to hear it right now. I like to hear it interpreted. He probably say, oh, I can't do it now. Oh, really? Well, my Bible says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. It says if somebody has a message, he can keep his mouth shut till the other guy's through. That means whatever the message is, he can contain it till the other fellow's through with his message, then he can get up and do it in due course. It doesn't say it's sudden, like spontaneous spiritual combustion that he can't control. It just comes rolling out of his mouth whenever the Spirit moves him. It says that he can contain it. It says here, by two or three, and that by course, one after the other, in order, and let one interpreter, and if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. Oh, they don't like that. And let him speak to himself and to God. Now, if you speak to yourself, nobody hears you. And to God, God hears you, but nobody else does. Let the prophets, that's inspired preachers or speakers, speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace, that you may all, or for you may all, speak or prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted, and the spirits... Obvious implication because of the chapter and all that has gone before. Spiritual gifts. The spirits, the spiritual additions from God's spirit that have been given to the prophets are subject to the prophets. The prophets are not possessed by the spirit. That's a very important point you need to get. And I know all of you do understand that. The Holy Spirit of God does not possess you. The Holy Spirit of God leads you, it will draw you, it will prick your conscience, it will sometimes, I think, nag at your mind and bother you when you're in a wrong attitude, but it will never dominate you, it will not control you, and it will not possess you. You are always in domination, in control, in possession of your own mind. And the Holy Spirit of God will help you to that degree that you, with your mind and will, allow the Holy Spirit to help you by being in a good spiritual attitude and being in close contact with God through Bible study and prayer. The Holy Spirit does not possess. Almighty God gives us of His Holy Spirit freely when we repent and we have the Holy Spirit in measure. It does show that we can have it wane 
that it can kind of come and go according to the ebb and the flow of our own prayer life and our own Bible study life and our own spiritual life, and sometimes we can almost shut it out. That's where you have the analogy of the women, you know, the, the, the virgins over in Matthew 25, the lamp. Half of them, little flickering lamp, almost ready to go out. He uses oil there as a type of the Holy Spirit, which lights the light. And he said some have their lamps filled, the others have theirs almost empty. It's about to go out. They go to the ones that have the filled lamps and they say, give us of your oil. He says, no, go buy it in the Great Tribulation. So it shows that it can wane and ebb. It can ebb and flow. It can be full flowing. He shows it's like a river of living waters that flows out of us in good works. That's the analogy that Christ gave. Or it can sometimes just be a trickle. If you have slowed down to a trickle spiritually, the only way to increase the flow is to actually pray and to get closer to God, perhaps to fast and pray, and we know that very well. Notice in verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. In Galatians 5.22 to the end of the chapter, and I won't belabor this a great deal, but once again, here is that very great scripture that we ought to be thankful is in the Bible in the Word of God, that tells us the proof. The old analogy, you know, the old statement, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The proof about where the Holy Spirit is working is infallible. Remember Mr. Dark's sermon about, actually, when you make a decision, you are the person who must be fallible or infallible because you're the person that has to make the decision. What he was showing was a man can't be infallible. You're saying you're infallible if you claim the man is infallible because you're deciding he's infallible, right? And if you're fallible, you're wrong and he's not. See what I'm saying? So therefore, you've got to be infallible. He made that clear, I think, in a sermon very recently. But this is infallible proof. The Holy Spirit is proved by what comes out of the life, the mouth, the mind, the example the personality, the character, the work, the accomplishment, etc., of the individual who has the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 22, the fruit, the proof, the evidence of the Spirit is love. Now, let's define love and do it very quickly. Love is sharing. Love is giving. Love is an outgoing concern. Love is an emotion directed away from the individual possessing it toward that one or that thing being loved. It is never flowing into you. When you love, it is not incoming. It's not like an old, ugly, ingrown toenail or an ingrown hair. It is not egotistical. It's not merely the emotion. It's absolutely impossible to fall in love. A fall is an accident. Adam didn't fall. He was pushed. A fall is not possible where love is concerned. You grow into love. You don't, you don't fall into your garden. You go out and spade the soil, and you rake it smooth and rake out the clods and rocks, and you fertilize it, and sometimes you get on your knees and tenderly care for it, and you pluck out the weeds, and you actually tenderly mollycoddle the little tender plants, sometimes put little paper cups or glass jars over the little tomato plants when they first come up, and the only way you're going to get fruit out of a garden is working like a Turk out there in the hot sun, slaving with the sweat off your brow, and then you're going to have the produce of a garden that's exactly the way it is in love. You work at love like a gardener in a garden, and the reward is the fruit that comes back because of what you invest and what you put in it. You do not fall in love. There's never been such a thing as love at first sight. There's lust at first sight. 
There's a desire to go jump in bed and do all sorts of things at first sight. But there is not love at first sight. You can't tell me somebody desires they want to share their bank account and share their lives and share their experiences and share every book they've read and share where they've been, what they've done, all their hopes, aspirations, and dreams with somebody they see walking by on the street. It's absolutely impossible. But Hollywood is going to die before they're going to admit that there is no such thing as love at first sight. Love, there are a lot of good examples of what love is, but the world generally doesn't know. Joy, and there again, what is joyful and happy today is joyful and happy to tell your grandkids about. It's not physical, it's not sensual, it is deep-flowing, abiding, it's happy, it's good, it's clean, it's pure, it is delightful, it is ebullient, it is, it is absolutely vibrant, it is a kind of happiness that is at a plane that is higher than just mere satisfaction. It's excitement. It's happiness that is exciting and ecstatic. That's what joy is. It comes from the root word from which we take the term jewelry. In the Spanish language, joyería is a jewelry store. And it's a joyery, believe it or not. Our English word jewelry means joyery or joyery. Because it's something that makes us happy. It sparkles. It's bright. <gasps> Look at that. It's the way it affects us. And that's where the root word, jewelry, comes from. Believe it or not. Joy. Girls are named that. I think girls are named love. Probably somebody named their... Only the Jewish people name their people after the metals of the world. But uh, I don't know why they do that. They do. Goldsmith, gold fine, gold in my ear, silver uh, fine, or silver, uh, silver, dasilva, etc. But there are women that are named after the so-called graces. They're named mercy and faith. I've known a few of those. Uh, hope, girl's name. Joy, girl's name. Never seen a boy or a man named that. Maybe there have been. Peace. Well, if you see an absence of love, which is outgoing concern, if you see disappointment and you see fear and feelings of moroseness and people that even dread going to church, you have to just ask yourself, is that the product of the Holy Spirit of God? And be honest with your answer. Peace. Long-suffering. Now, long-suffering is not my strong suit. I need to grow in that. A lot of people suffer a little while, and then they've had enough. And they're going to let you know when they've had enough. Okay, that did it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. What is that? People get to that point and think, now this is where God and I agree. God and I, we put up with this. Oh, we're going to stand it. Now I'm going to blow me somebody away. And that's the way human beings act. They do it in movies. It's always the great line, okay, that did it. That's the last straw. Proverbial, the old story goes, they load the straw. You know, they start out with a bundle. Then it's one straw at a time. The old camel's there, and his legs are wobbly, you know. That's why they had the sway between the two humps. The original shaggy dromedary, because they were loading the one hump with straw, and finally just divided it in two, I guess. I guess that's why they're spraddle-legged and splay-footed and had that bent neck, because they began practicing by loading straw. Finally, the old fable goes, it was one last straw, and all four legs just went whoop. The old camel hit the ground, and his back was broken. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. So that was the act, or that was the deed, or that was the shove, or that was the marble you picked up and ran with, or that was the curse word that broke the camel's back, and now I'm going to get me the baseball bat and break yours. And so people are not long-suffering. 
That means self-control, doesn't it? Beyond what many of us can imagine. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and that's temperance in physical, personal habits as well as in things like drink and in food and in the way you rear your children, living a temperate life, knowing when to say no, which is not after the one you had, which takes away the ability to say no. The one you have which takes away the ability to say no is gone beyond temperance. Against such there is no law. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk, meaning live in the Spirit. Now really what he's saying, if we claim to live in the Spirit, if we say we live spiritually, then let's do it. Let's live in the Spirit, according to the Spirit. Let's not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. I won't have time to turn to all of Romans 8. I want to read just a couple of choice scriptures out of it, and then one final scripture, and I want to conclude right quickly. But in Romans, the 8th chapter is a very, very, of course, beautiful chapter of the Bible. I've called it like a Bible inside the Bible, because it is the chapter that really tells us the whole purpose of human life. I love this scripture because it seems to apply so much today to so many of God's people. Verse 15, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, adoption, God's Holy Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, which is an untranslated Hebrew word that means Father. Now notice this, the spirit itself here even the biblical translators chose that meaning, not himself, bears witness with our spirit, there is a spirit in man, a spiritual aspect to the mental uh, capacity of, of our human physical brain that makes us above the animals and gives us the capacity to love, to have a conscience, to receive of the Holy Spirit of God, that we are the children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, of all that he is to inherit, what did he inherit? He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Verse 23, not only they, that is the creation, but ourselves also which have the first fruits, the down payment, of the Spirit, even we, and here's where I think sometimes what Paul was talking about, about praying in the Spirit, perhaps applies, we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the sonship or the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body, for we're saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? If we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we don't know how to pray as we ought to, as the margin says. We don't even know how to pray as we ought to. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. If this does not apply directly to what we read in 1 Corinthians 14, I don't know what does. For he that searcheth the hearts knows what is the spiritual mind the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now let's finally turn over to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, and let all of those who have attitudes or ideas about the Spirit of God that is in any way in contravention to what I've said today acknowledge that this is the truth.